0: Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We come to the conclusion of our Lenten Sermon Series, Christ Alone. And in this last sermon, we see how Christ treats His friends, even though they fail and betray Him. The good news for us is that He treats us in the same loving way when we fail and betray Him. You're listening to Jesus and His Friends by Reverend Christy Mannion. Erin already mentioned, and I'll echo that this is our last um, sermon in our Lenten series because next week is Palm Sunday, and after that, it's Easter. So we're still in the series, Christ Alone, and we've traveled through looking at Jesus' interactions with a variety of institutions, the government, the religious authorities, and then closer relationships with his family. And now, today, we turn to Jesus and his friends in the book of Mark. We're Mark chapter 14, two separate little um, vignettes there. We're on page 1583. Uh, Mark fourteen twenty-seven to 31, and then over the page 43 to 52. Listen. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Verse 43 Just as Jesus was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. This is the word of the Lord. On a dark, wet night, sometime after our first child was born, I followed a line of people into an unfamiliar church basement in southeast Grand Rapids. I was a seminary student, and I was there to do some research. I came to watch and learn because the classes, the local governing body, was holding oral exams for three potential pastors. And I needed to see just how did this go. I don't remember too much about that meeting, but I do remember all these years later, one of the interviewer's questions. It caught me totally by surprise. It was something like this. In 10 words or less, how would you summarize the good news of the gospel? The simplicity and the difficulty of doing that stumped me that night. 27 books in the New Testament. You want me to talk about the good news of Jesus in 10 words? I don't remember the candidate's responses exactly. I think one of the answers was something like God's grace comes for sinners through Jesus Christ. I think another person or two quoted some really short New Testament statements. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Or God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Or Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. In my short lifetime of belonging to Jesus, at the time I realized I hadn't ever consciously tried to distill the good news into such a tiny, tight formula. What would you say if someone asked you, And I start there because Jesus' words to the disciples in Mark 14, 27, and 28 are themselves a short statement of God's good news. It's not the first one I would think of committing to memory. The good news is there, but it's painted in purple and black and blue and gray. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. It's Passover night, and things are about to get very bad for Jesus and for his friends, the disciples. They're headed for the Mount of Olives after celebrating a somber dinner. Three times in Mark, Jesus has already tried— clearly to prepare the disciples for the eventuality that he is going to suffer and die and rise. But they just don't seem to understand what that really means. Peter and John and James have trekked up a mountain with Jesus. They've seen him on the mountaintop speaking with Moses and Elijah and hearing God's voice approve of his son, They've seen him clothed in dazzling white. And on the way down the mountain, Jesus commands his disciples. He says to them, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody what you've seen up here until I have risen from the dead. And among themselves, the disciples say to each other, what does he mean by rising from the dead? Surely that's got to be some kind of metaphor, some kind of parable that we have to figure out. This kind of good news is such an unimaginable prospect for Jesus' friends that Jesus tells them they're all going to fall away when it comes to pass. And Jesus, who's aware of their weakness and their frailty to the end, is doing his best, even at the 11th hour, to prepare them for the difficult night ahead. Peter, who once rebuked Jesus for talking about this, has come to see that suffering might be a part of Jesus' mission. So instead of trying to talk him out of it, he says, Jesus, I will be with you. I will go with you to the point of death. Even if everyone else leaves, I will never disown you. His declaration is admirable. And strong. It reveals this posture in Peter's life of devoted perseverance, sincere intention. His heart intends to be faithful. Even if the other ten are fickle and faithless and frail, somehow Peter thinks he's going to endure. But Peter's deceived. He just doesn't know what he doesn't know. He doesn't know that he is no match for the circumstances that are going to come in the next hours. He doesn't know that he won't respond the way that he hopes he will. And his failure will cut him to the heart. Falling away in this passage, is something that happens to Peter, to the other disciples. Literally, the word that Jesus uses there is that they will be scandalized by his arrest. They're going to be tripped up, trapped, caught off guard, made to fall, maybe even offended, totally humiliated that they have followed a Lord whose end looked like this. For their shepherd will be struck, and the axis of their world will tip, and they will run away like frightened sheep. Not only will these eleven friends disown and abandon Jesus, there's another. It gets worse. Before the night is over, another one of Jesus' friends will betray him, one who's from the inner circle of the twelve, one who was considered trustworthy enough to be the treasurer of the group. And there comes Judas leading a delegation with weapons and a warrant. And upon Judas' kiss, Jesus is seized. Three years, not long in some of our lifespans, but three years, 24-7, living together together walking together, talking together, learning together, witnessing miracles together. The disciples must have been reasonably sure that they had a pretty solid sense of who Jesus was, what He was about. He was the Christ. They knew that much. The Son of the living God. But arrest and trial, crucifixion, did not fit the picture These events are so disoriented and terrifying that they will all fall down. Just as Jesus has said, Mark reports that at the point of Jesus' arrest, that's it. Everyone runs away and flees. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus, and when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind Like the disciples, we stumble and fall. We are subject to the same fears, the same sufferings, temptations, and failures. We don't hold up our most valued commitments, our cherished hopes and intentions. We live with varying degrees of uneasiness about these failures and shortcomings. Author and pastor John Ortberg writes just a beautiful account of how this takes place, even in very ordinary ways. I'm disappointed with myself, he writes in the opening pages of The Life You've Always Wanted. I'm disappointed not so much with particular things that I've done as aspects of who I've become. I have a nagging sense that all is not as it should be. So Ortberg writes about this gap between what he wants to be and how he experiences himself. He knows that there are darker and more difficult character flaws in him and in everyone else that he's ready to write down on paper. But he writes about the ordinary and small compromises in his daily life under its stress. When I look in on my children as they sleep at night, he says, I think of the kind of father I want to be. I want to create moments of magic. I want them to remember laughing until the tears flow. I want to read to them and make the books come alive so that they love to read, too. I want to have slow, sweet talks with them as they're getting ready to close their eyes. I want to sing them awake in the morning. I look in on them as they sleep at night, and I remember how the day really went. I remember how they were trapped in a fight about checkers and I walked out of the room because I didn't want to spend the energy needed to teach them how to resolve conflict. I remember how my daughter spilled cherry punch at dinner and I yelled at her as if she had revealed some deep character flaw. Simply because I'm big, she's little, and I can get away with it. I'm disappointed that I still love God so little and sin so much. The feeling of disappointment, Ortberg writes, is a reflection of a deeper problem. My failure to be the person that God had in mind when He created me. So if you peel back the layers of aspirations, the layers of intention, that paper over the void of our failures— what you will see looks an awful lot like that young man in the garden without his clothes, running for cover. Imagine a woman who's always longed for her dad's approval, and achievement has always been one way to secure it. She really wants to make her dad proud, she longs to be worthy of his affirmation, so she works hard. She gets a good job after college. She climbs the ladder. She's doing great. Then one day her company is bought out. They're bringing in all their own people. Her job is cut. And she's tripped up. Not only does she have this puzzle of what to do next, not only does she wonder if there was something about her performance that could have or would have or should have kept her employed, She also wonders if she can face her dad. So she stews over her failures, real and perceived, and she puts off calling him about it. Will dad jump on those failures and criticize her faults? Will he dissect where she went wrong? Or will her naked soul, her vulnerable self, Come into the sight of a father who will sit with her in the disappointment. Who will say, I know, I know, you've been caught in something that's bigger than you. I love you. Not going anywhere. Friends and families and parents and church communities and neighbors, we struggle. We fail. But because of Jesus, our Heavenly Father, who can't fail, that Father comes alongside of us, weak and wounded and sinful as we are. The good news of this passage that we read is that Jesus knows. Jesus knows ahead of time the disciples are going to fail He knows all of it—their self-deception, their naked fear, their shame—sees it coming despite their protests, their belief that they will not leave him. Just as he said, it comes to pass in exactly that way. You will all fall away. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after— After I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. I'm going to go to the place that we've called home together. I will meet you there. We'll be together again. Jesus, fully human, fully God, says, I will face the abandonment of friends who pledged never to leave or forsake me. I will face the betrayal and the arrest I will face the trial and the judgment and the punishment. I will face the dark night of the soul, wondering if God himself has left. I will face physical suffering and death. And with a strength that has cast out demons and stilled storms, Jesus turns with that power toward obedience, the way of the cross. Because through the path of suffering and death comes the promise of resurrection, restoration. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, also wrote 57 other books, which I did not know until this week. One of them is devoted fully to unpacking a tiny little verse in John chapter 6, John six thirty-seven. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Author Dane Ortlund tries to paraphrase John Bunyan's older language, tries to capture his take on the heart of Jesus, its steadfastness, its faithfulness, its perseverance, despite human failure. Dane Ortlund writes this, We are factories of fresh resistance to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons for him to cast us out, specific sins, specific failures, we still retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. No wait, we say, approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I have really... Really messed up. I know, he says. You know most of it, but there's more perversity down inside me, down deep, that's hidden. I know it all. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. I understand. I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. You're the only kind of person that I'm here to help. Oh, but you don't get it. My offenses aren't just directed toward others. They're directed towards you. Then I'm the one who's the most suited to forgive them. Oh, but the more of the ugliness in me that you discover, the sooner you're going to get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The Jesus who sees all of you, all of me, knows the things that we don't want to see, the things that we haven't seen, the things that we can't see. He faces His own death exposed and alone, and He did it so that He could receive our battered, naked souls, He could baptize them in the healing water of His name, that He could raise us up with Him, wrap us up in clean new clothes to wear—the clothes of Jesus Christ. So you need not be afraid of exposure or shame in God's eyes. For the God who made you has also redeemed you at great cost. Thanks be to God. Lord, our God, we could spend a lifetime trying to understand in a living way what it means that you have loved us with an everlasting love. So, Lord, give us strength to put our hands in yours each day, to entrust to you not only our successes, but also our failures, to know that you see us, you've loved us, and you will carry us home. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.